All right, welcome in. Late Kick is live. It is March 5th. Been a little while. The year of our Lord, 2020. Happy to have you with us. Same basic look, same channel, title, new channel, location. And I'll explain all that at the end of the show. In the meantime, we got a lot to talk about. Spring ball is upon us in some places. It is just about to be upon us in other places. And as you know, this time last year is when we originally started this show independently. Now we're under a much bigger umbrella, which fortunately for you and myself gives us a whole lot more resources and intel to play with. And we're going to leverage that and harness that to our fullest extent. So tonight, I'm going to talk a little bit, maybe from a different angle, about a story you've probably been following, which is, of course, Nick Saban, Scott Cochran, that whole deal. I'm going to hit some LSU rumors, intel, a little bit of rumblings down there as they get set to open spring ball. I'm going to kick it over to Columbia, South Carolina, and I'm going to probably agree in 2020, March of 2020, with what you guys were saying this time last year, so March of 2019. Got a lot of reasons for that, so we'll get to that. And we're also going to touch on a few other things. At the end of the show, kind of detail what's happened over the last month, how in the world we ended up here, what's going on here, and what is to come here. Spoiler alert, a lot of really, really good things. So let's get into it. Today, you probably woke up this morning, and yeah, you probably, if you are a subscriber to a lot of the feeds for college football, you were one eye open, kind of scrolling through the feed, and you saw an article on AL.com. And I've got it in front of me. I'm not going to read it to you because that's what you have your own computer for. But John Talty and Matt Zenitz uh, do a really good job covering Alabama. And so we don't really waste time a whole lot on this show. If you haven't already noticed, you will come to notice. But when there's good work out there and there's good sourcing, and it's very thorough and vetted properly, we like to draw the meat from it and then we'll build upon it. And so what I wanted to do just quickly in order to recap, if you haven't been following, if you have a life, in other words, and you haven't been following this in February, longtime strength and conditioning coach for Alabama, Scott Cochran, moves on. Kirby Smart hires him, not for strength and conditioning, but for a special teams role. Scott Cochran, I'll mention this when we get towards the end of this, has long seeked an on-the-field coaching role. The man you're looking at right now, Nick Saban, has turned him down no less than three times seeking that role. Again, more on that in just a second. But... A little light was shed on this, and a lot of what we have been telling you for a long time on this program was brought to light, and I think maybe because it was put in print instead of just on some channel on YouTube, then all of a sudden a lot of more folks buy into it. So just skimming through this, Cochran had become enamored with the idea of making the switch to being an on-field assistant. Check. Been telling you that for about a year. Why Cochran ultimately did not end up at Ole Miss is a hot topic in the coaching world. Let you know more about that when I can. Regardless of what happened between Ole Miss and Cochran, it solidified in his mind when it was handled the way it was, he being Scott Cochran here, that it was time to move on. I want to pause right here and I want to let you know what that means. What it means is Scott Cochran was no longer going to be one of the strengths of Alabama football the way that he had been. And I'm not even, guys, I'm not talking about from the standpoint of are his methods outdated because I'm not qualified to break that down, nor in all likelihood are you. But what we see here is, and there's a quote, a very well-sourced quote in this piece from Zenitz and Talty. He made up his mind. I'm leaving. I'm done with the strength thing and dealing with Coach Saban. When someone is in one of the most pivotal roles in your organization, and they're kind of referring to it as uh, the strength thing, probably time for you to spin that wheel just as much as it's time for them to spin that wheel. Uh, we 
return to the quote. Once you do that, when the Ole Miss thing didn't happen, when you go back, you find all the problems magnified. You guys who are Alabama fans or maybe just college football fans have seen the rash of injuries in Tuscaloosa. Now, on this show, I thought it was kind of irresponsible to just hop on the wagon of saying, all right, well, one or two injuries could be a freak thing, but now there's a trend here, and well, you can't deny the trend. What I didn't do is I didn't take the added step of saying, this is Scott Cochran's fault. Uh, Scott Cochran's methods are outdated, and whatever he's doing is tearing feet and ankles and knees up in Tuscaloosa. Well, I didn't do that. But you're high on bath salts if you don't think that Nick Saban didn't take a long, hard look at his program and the methodology. And if you've been in Tuscaloosa, Alabama recently, even before Scott Cochran moved on, there's always construction going on there. But most recently, they're building a big, fat new sports science center. Nick Saban made sure in his statement upon Cochran's exit to prominently mention it in that press release that wasn't by accident. Nothing that guy does is by accident. I continue. The advice from Saban, once he learned that Cochran wanted to be an on-field guy, was to attend Alabama special teams meetings and invest time into learning the intricacies of the position. Cochran left upset. He thought he had already done that. Saban, meanwhile, had concerns about numbers and results from a strength and conditioning standpoint. He wanted tweaks made to the program. Sources said Saban began riding Cochran. At that point, Cochran even more determined to leave blah, blah, blah. You know how that ended. Here's what I want to tell you. When this happened, I went on the record here. I was in the minority, but I went on the record here as saying, I didn't really think it was uh, a tsunami that was going to engulf the Alabama program. Now, here's what I will tell you, and this goes to the first point I want to make is, this is probably going to be a good thing for the University of Georgia. This isn't a zero-sum game. Personnel moves are not football games. Football's beautiful because you have a winner and you have a loser. That's, that's competition. That's athletics. Sometimes in the personnel world, nobody wins. Sometimes both parties win. Sometimes you do have a winner and a loser, and sometimes you have varying degrees on either side of that fence. I told you, and I'll tell you again now, I believe both sides, when it's mid-November 2020 this year, I think Georgia's going to look at the early contributions that they're getting from Scott Cochran in the recruiting aspect and say, Really glad we got that guy. And I think when the new guys that are on campus right now, uh, guys like David Ballou, Matt Ray, names you probably don't know because they were tucked away in Indiana, but you will know when you start seeing them sink their teeth into and putting their thumbprint on the Alabama program in conjunction with basically the NASA center that they're building there from the sports science aspect, I think Alabama folks will look around and say, remember how much we panicked when Cochran left here? You know, as it turns out, we're doing okay here. It wasn't a crippling blow. What it was was a perfect storm of a dead period, two brand names in Georgia and Alabama, and the need to generate conversation and clicks and what have you. So we didn't really buy into that. Here's what I will tell you, though. Nick Saban's key to a prolonged run of success at Alabama has always been adaptability. I want you to not even think about strength and conditioning. I want you to think for a second about offense. For anyone who questions, and I don't really think many people are, but for anyone who would question that that guy Nick Saban's adaptable and probably the best in the game at it, could you imagine taking the 2009 Alabama team, marching them offensively into a film room, popping on tape of the 2019 Alabama team, and this uh, hypothetical, we're able to draw film from the future, and have like Greg McElroy and Barrett Jones or whoever in the world was on campus, then have them watch the 2019 version of Alabama. Have Jim McElwain or Doug Nussmeyer told that in a few years, Lane Kiffin and Steve Sarkeesian are going to be the offensive coordinators here. 
Uh, think about defensively, even as recently as 2011 or 2012, the way that Alabama won games and then having Johnny Manziel and Nick Marshall make them look foolish and having Nick Saban look at his own side of the ball where he specialized on defense and saying, um, we got to recruit a different athlete and we got to develop them differently. And then all of a sudden you went from having a bunch of Dante Hightowers and Courtney Upshaws to Rashawn Evans, who is a freak and who in previous years will play safety probably for Alabama. And so Nick Saban's been adaptable with every aspect of his program. Why in the world would it be so crazy to assume that maybe even if Scott Cochran was staying there, there was about to be an overturning of several stones in search of regaining the stranglehold on the sport that they once had. And make no mistake about it, they recruited lights out, but what they did was they physically imposed their will on pretty much everyone they played. Alabama hasn't fallen off. They're still in the top tier of college football, but when you've seen them against Clemson, when you've seen them most recently against LSU, when you've seen them play Georgia, not only have they not appeared to be the far physically superior team, maybe in some of those cases they haven't been the physically superior team, period. That's not something they're comfortable with, and that's not something, when you have the resources that they do, limitless in supply, that's not something that they'll ever be comfortable with. But just some feedback that I was getting before Cochran ever left, as recently as, or as early as last year, there was a growing divide. I never, I don't think I talked about it on the show, but there was a growing divide between the public fan perception of the value of Scott Cochran. This exists with a lot of strength and conditioning guys, by the way. They are high profile, more high profile now than they were in 2002. There was a growing divide between the value that people inside the industry and inside Alabama placed on him versus maybe the value that fans and media did. So when this happened, I knew what I was going to hear. I was going to see headline after headline that this is potentially a crushing blow to Alabama. And I knew I was going to look at the eye, Josh, here, and I was going to get texts from people whose opinions I trust saying, oh, man, it's going to sting, but watch what they do. And so I sat back and I said, good for Georgia. Probably not nightmarish for Alabama. And as it turns out, with the hires that they've made, mark my words, this time next year, this will be a distant memory and folks will be looking for new low-hanging fruit to bash off the tree. But I think Georgia's going to be fine here. And I think Alabama's going to be fine. And I think that before too much longer, the names David Ballou and Matt Ray are going to be household items in the world of college football. Let's move on, shall we? Uh, this time last year is usually a sentence and a phrase that I use a lot around this time of the year. And mainly it's because everyone has optimism in February and in March, and it's no different in Auburn, Alabama. But you remember where the optimism was drawn from? This time last year, the optimism in Auburn was being drawn from the fact that you had just painted the walls with Purdue's blood. How did that happen after a somewhat disappointing season? Well, remember, just to give the proper backstory here, we watch Auburn go into the bowl season. And we've got changes. Chip Lindsey is the offensive coordinator at Kansas for like, I think, 45 seconds, wasn't it? And then he takes the head job at Troy. Well, this man, Gus Malzahn, says, I'm doing what I came here to do. It was a mistake. He was famously quoted as saying, it was a mistake to ever give up my clipboard. I'm taking it back and I'm calling plays in this bowl game. And so what did he do? He called plays in the bowl game, much to the chagrin of the Purdue Boilermakers. So Auburn names the score in the bowl game. And then we come into January, and then we go into February, and everyone's jacked because it's, it's all of a sudden like Gus Malzahn's found that mojo that's so important in this world, and we're going to go into spring, and we got either Bo Nix 
or Joey Gatewood, both of whom seem to be more talented than maybe the options we've had on campus. And we, we nailed that. I don't want to pat myself on the back, mainly because this shirt's too restrictive to do so. But Bo Nix, and I'll stand by this, is probably pound for pound as talented this side of Cam Newton as any quarterback Malzahn's had. Whether they can develop him to his ultimate potential remains to be seen, and that's an entirely separate topic. I think the overarching key topic for Auburn football now and forever is will this coaching staff ever recruit from high school and develop a quarterback to be a championship caliber player? But having said that, everyone thought things were going to be all well and good because Malzahn's calling plays now. We're going to get back to our roots, and we're going to run more tempo, and we're going to maximize the potential of the personnel that we have. We recruit to one system, we play to the other one. Well, now we're a year later. And I think that one of those gaps is forming maybe with Gus Malzahn's perception of his program and fans' perception of the program. Because if I just snap my fingers and say, Auburn 2019, what were they? Most people's consensus is, hey, it wasn't all that great. If Auburn played in the ACC last year, they're probably 11-1, and one, and that's if they face Clemson. I don't think Gus Malzahn views last year as a failure. I think once you get 50,000 feet in the air and you just have revisionist history, you remember, well, we didn't win the SEC West. We didn't play in Atlanta. I mean, we got thrashed by Minnesota, and I'm going to let that be an island uh, unto itself. I'm not talking about bowl season. But this was a nine-win team in the regular season. I don't think I need to remind anyone how tough the schedule was. And I don't think I need to remind you, or maybe I do, because that's what the show's for, the losses they had at Florida, we were on the sideline. We were at that one. That was a one-possession game until very late. At LSU, we were on the sideline for that one. It turns out we were at a whole lot of Auburn games last year. Uh, famously, a three-point game. They ended up coming as close as anyone ever was going to, as history turned out, to beating LSU, at least on the scoreboard. And then they lose one-possession style against Georgia. We were on the sideline for that one. They beat Alabama. Their three losses, two of those teams played in the SEC championship game, one finished the season red hot, top 10, and a lot of people are going to be on that Florida bandwagon this year. And so Gus Malzahn looks around, and he sees his buddy Chad Morris get fired at Arkansas. Now, Gus Malzahn's like most other coaches. It doesn't matter what your situation is. It's just like in recruiting. Doesn't matter if you got a five-star, multi-year starter at left tackle. If there's another five-star left tackle out there on the trail and he wants to come, you take him and you just figure out the roster situation. Same at quarterback. Well, it's the same on your coaching staff too. So Chad Morris is available. Make no mistake, Arkansas notwithstanding, Chad Morris is a heck of a coach and he's a heck of an offensive mind. Malzahn's known him since Moses was a child and so he hires him. That wasn't what caught my attention. What caught my attention and everyone else's subsequently on the planes was Gus Malzahn brings him in. Next question, what's he going to do? Um, he's your offensive coordinator. Okay, but what's he going to do? I was doing a hit with Brandon Marcello from Auburn Undercover recently. And man, he, he could not have echoed my sentiments anymore if I had given him a script. I asked him essentially, what's the role going to be here? And Brandon Marcello said, and out of his mouth, I agreed with every word and endorsed every thought. Well, it's what Malzahn says or it's what I think. I mean, like, what do you really want to know here? Because Malzahn says all the right things. We're going to develop that intermediate passing game more. We're going to work on different passing concepts. It's going to be Chad Morris's offense. I trust him. He's the best offensive coordinator in America. We're going to do what every new offense since the beginning of time has done, incorporate the tight end more. And essentially after all that, Brandon Marcello said, and I agreed, okay, well, I'll, I'll kind of believe that when I see it. Here's why. Last year wasn't a disaster, guys. Uh, this wasn't, 
Auburn is not a situation like South Carolina, where it is a for sure, do or die, make or break, torch the barn, kill the rat, start over from scratch offensively kind of deal. I don't think. And I don't think Gus Malzahn views it that way either. What I think is he made a move, and then they'll just figure it out as they go. But let's just say, for argument's sake, as spring ball gets set to open down there, let's say for argument's sake, this is Gus Malzahn's mentality. You don't learn that stuff in the spring. And not only for the reasons I'm about to mention. In fact, I'll go ahead and mention them now. you got multiple offensive linemen to replace. Uh, you've got a new offense you're putting in, allegedly. And you got a bunch of new pieces to move around. See, 2020 was the nightmare year. People at Auburn have seen it coming for two years on the offensive line. And they don't have the horses. That's going to be my prediction for you. I don't think they have the horses to have a championship-caliber offensive line. Well, that matters for obvious reasons, but it also matters for part B of what I was about to tell you. We're installing a new offense down here. Forget about your offense. Forget about your multi-layered passing concepts and philosophical changes you're going to put in. You got to get the nuts and bolts of this offense figured out. So if anyone thinks or has grand illusions of wrapping up spring and coming out of this thing with everything solved and everything figured out on the planes... I think you got another thing coming, and that's not just if you're a poster on a message board or a caller to a talk show. I think it's the same if you're a coach on this coaching staff, up to and including the head man. So when are we going to find out how real this is? And this is, again, acknowledging argument's sake here. I'm going to give Malzahn benefit of the doubt, and let's just assume it is Chad Morris's offense. It's easy for it to be your offense in the spring game. It's easy for it to be your offense when you're playing roast beef tech and Catala Community College, to use a local Columbus, Georgia reference. They play North Carolina in week two. UNC could be formidable this year, but if they get by UNC, they don't play in all likelihood a ranked team until at Georgia week six. And where we find out where rubber really meets road is when it is 13 to three with about four minutes and change to go until halftime, and they have totally bogged down after, as usual, the first 15 or so plays work out, and they don't really dent the scoreboard all that much, and it's Chad Morris's offense. Until you go in the locker room, Malzahn always loves those halftime adjustments, like you couldn't do it with two minutes to go in the half. But go in that locker room, and you come out for the third quarter, is it still Chad Morris's offense? And when it's 19 to 6, and it's midway through the third quarter. It's 19 to nine, and it's the end of the third quarter. It's just a hideous game. Weather's not an issue. It's just inconsistency is the issue. Is it still Chad Morris's offense? I'm telling you right now, Malzahn nearly sank one time before letting someone else hold the old proverbial clipboard. I don't think he's sinking a second time doing that. He may go down. Every coach knows it's coming eventually. He may go down, but if he does, it's gonna be him clutching that headset and clutching that clipboard, and that's why I think 2020, forget spring. I mean, spring, we got to use spring to figure out who your starting offensive linemen are going to be down there. Whether you got five new ones, I didn't even mention new offensive line coach. Why not? New offensive, everything's new at Auburn, except the quarterback position, ironically. And so you watch offensive line in the spring, and we're going to be following this, and we'll have our ear to the ground and leverage and work our network just as well as hopefully anyone in the industry to find out what's happening at all these outposts, Auburn included during spring. But what I want to know is far more basic than what's the offensive line going to consist of? What's Bo Nix going to be like year one to year two? I just want to know philosophically in the meeting room when it's just one-on-one, -on -one, there are no cameras or microphones present. What, ooh, coronavirus, can't do that, sorry. What are the conversations between Chad Morris and Gus Malzahn and then when the heat's turned up and it's pressure cooker time, 
what are those conversations? And does the head man remember the conversations and the press clippings from the spring? I think you guys have seen that story play out before. Let's head down to LSU. LSU, I was parked in Columbus, Georgia. Just to give you a little backstory about how Late Kick started. I was doing this independently this time last year. We were in Columbus, Georgia, and I kind of latched on to LSU a little bit. I saw a whole lot that I liked, and there were a few question marks, offensive line being one, that I saw as standing between them and an SEC Western Division Championship because I thought the roster was good enough to match Alabama, and I thought that quarterback with the implementation of everything else new was going to be enough to challenge Alabama because I thought LSU, from a commitment to a new approach standpoint, they went full DeSoto. They landed on the beach and they burned the ships. There was no going back. And I think as the spring wore on and then the offseason went on and, you know, we're sitting in Hoover, Alabama, and here comes Ed Orgeron, and he's talking about how, you know, he's not smiling, he's not laughing, he's just kind of matter-of-fact saying, um, I mean, we're committed to this. You know, he's joking around saying, I've seen the playbook. There's a lot of four and five wide in there. And everyone kind of, hee hee look at this, look at this swamp creature. What in the world is he talking about? You know, by the way, the same ones who kind of in a roundabout way mocked him in the offseason were the same ones writing the articles at the end of the season, wagging their finger at the rest of the college football world, knowing that they were wagging their finger at the very thing they were guilty of. And that is basically thinking a dude who talks like this can't outsmart the sport. Well, all Ed Orgeron did was not outsmart the sport. What he did was he hired people to outsmart the sport, and then he was smart enough to get out of the way. There are a lot of other coaches, one of whom we're going to talk about before the show's over tonight, who maybe need to take a page out of the Ed Orgeron playbook and wash those hands, say, you guys got it, and leave the room and go find something else to do. So that's what Ed Orgeron and LSU did last year. A lot of people didn't buy in until midway through the season last year. And I, listen, I'm not, I'm not here to do that because we'll be wrong all the time with our predictions too. But one of the overarching themes always on this show, you'll hear me say it probably a dozen or more times over the span of the summer as we get towards media days and then all the preview magazines come out and then it's prediction time, is don't get married to your spring and summer predictions. Don't get married to them. In fact, if you got a pen in your hand, just chunk it over the shoulder and then pick up a, a pencil. One of those pencils that have like the football helmets on the side of them, you know, where the lead is really light and you got to press down hard. Don't press down hard. Press down really, really light. You can write your predictions out. That's all well and good. That's fun. Everyone does it. But write it in really, really light pencil because you got to be ready for opinions that you've held for four or five months in the off season. You got to be ready to erase them like two quarters into the regular season because football is really what tells you what the season's gonna be about. It's not a magazine, it's not a press conference, it's not all this stuff that people really think they understand more than the game, and in some cases they're right up to and including some people who cover this game, but we find out during the season. Well, that's what happened with LSU last year. Well, now a lot of people are trying to overthink the room on LSU. You probably either have heard what I'm about to read a list of, or you probably, maybe, potentially could be thinking it yourself. I'm not telling you you're wrong, I'm telling you, I'm not necessarily buying into all this. Now, here's what we have to buy into. We have to buy into the idea that LSU's got to replace a lot of starters. All the successful teams do, unless you're Clemson and they keep guys on campus like a decade. But unless you're Clemson, everybody does that. Everybody goes through that. Now, LSU may be going through it to a pretty violent degree this year. But yeah, 
They're going to have to replace a lot of guys. They're going to have to replace a Heisman Trophy winner at quarterback. They're going to have a giant target on their back. You could have a hangover in effect. There we are standing in the corner right there. Perfectly timed, Colin. Well done. You could Listen, all this stuff's in play. I'm not arguing with you. Here's what I want to know. What I want to know is, just as this team at every turn last year broke conventional wisdom over its collective knee and beat the sport over the head with it, I want to know, was that a 2019 thing or is that an LSU thing? Because if it's an LSU thing, then all the hype and all the internal confidence that you're hearing right now bubbling up collectively from Baton Rouge out of the mouths of people that we trust around the program, but also Ed Orgeron has not been bashful about touting Miles Brennan as the unquestioned, not only starting quarterback of this program, but a leader of this program. If all this is accurate, and it's not just coach speak, and it's not just message boards fodder, you may be looking at a transition culturally to a program that's capable of doing what their neighbors in Tuscaloosa have been doing for about a decade plus now. And that's Losing a bunch of guys, they can lose a star quarterback, and then they just hit the reload button. Why can't this team do that? I know they don't have the decade-long established track record, but the thing about it is they didn't have it last year either, and that didn't stop them from just crucifying Oklahoma like it was backyard, it was street ball, but that was actually a college football playoff game. And then handling Clemson after getting down early, handling Clemson in the national championship game, it didn't stand in their way last year. And so all of our intel, and we talked to quite a few people down there, all our intel suggests everything that's being said about Miles Brennan right now is legitimate. No one's strapped it up yet. That guy's not taking meaningful snaps as the starting quarterback at LSU. You don't have to tell me this. You don't have to light the chat up in the comment section up with that. Do it, just not with that. I know all that, guys. You don't have to tell me anything that I already know. But let's talk about what we don't know, but what we're going to find out. What will he be as a starting quarterback? Now I want you to look at the helmet. You see the LSU helmet. And in a lot of cases, this is the way a lot of folks' minds work. You think of a helmet, you think of a reputation. So I say Miles Brennan, you think of the LSU helmet, and you think of the reputation of LSU offense. And one year does not a reputation make. Now even I will acknowledge that. So just as easy as it is to remember what's freshest in your mind being 2019, you also remember 2018 when they were getting shut out with Joe Burrow at quarterback against Alabama in 17, 16, 15. And LSU had been mired in mediocrity at best with a bunch of really, really good players that had to wait to get in the NFL to maximize their collective potential. And so now everyone wonders, okay, well, you had Burrow last year. Maybe he was just a generational guy. He's going to be in all likelihood the first pick in the NFL draft. Well, here's what the thinking is at LSU. And here's kind of what I make it analogous to. I'm a big believer in metaphorical speaking here. Roger Bannister was the first guy to run a sub four-minute mile. Up until he did it, everyone just assumed that's not humanly possible. I mean, a sub four-minute mile, you need machinery to do that. And so for a long, long time, at least in documented history, nobody ran a sub four-minute mile. Then Roger Bannister, Roger Bannister, he ran a four-minute mile, sub four, actually. And guess what happened after Roger Bannister ran his sub four-minute mile? Then this dude did it, and that dude did it, and that dude did it, and all that changed was someone showed that it was possible. Now I want you to put yourself in the shoes of Miles Brennan. He's not a true freshman. He was on campus last year. He was there last year. He sat there just like you and I did, but he had a different vantage point, and he watched a revolution happen right before his eyes. He now steps in 
to fill the shoes of starting quarterback at LSU, but he's not stepping in trying to do what no one's ever done down there. He's stepping in and he's seen it done. And those wide receivers have seen it done. And the grad assistants there have seen it done. The entire culture last year changed in Baton Rouge. And so what once was thought to be impossible has now been shown to be very possible. Now is it duplicable? For the folks who came after Roger Bannister, it was. And I think right now, a lot of folks are looking at all these cons, having to replace all the starters, new quarterback, new offense, false, but that's what is going to be alleged, new offense, target on your back, could be a letdown season, could get complacent. And you're going to look at all that stuff, and you may allow yourself to overthink the room. And all I'm going to look at is the potential that a new culture is in place, and this program is one of a handful, a very select handful, that's able to now hit the reload button. And if LSU is in reload territory, 10 wins is the floor. If they're not, then eight or nine wins is always a possibility. I don't believe that's where they are anymore. I believe that's where they were. I believe that team right there is one of about half a dozen that I circle. If the sport works out the way it typically does, that's capable of winning a championship now. Wasn't saying that about him two years ago. I was saying it about him this time last year. Think I got a pretty good feel about LSU. And the one thing that I can't wait to see this spring, it's not even quarterback. Guys, I, I got confidence in Miles Brennan. The one thing I can't wait to see this spring is the same thing I couldn't wait to see last spring. How does our offensive line develop? The answer to that question a year ago was, oh, they're going to go on to win the Joe Moore Award. Talking to Shay Dixon, our guy with Go247 last week, and we were talking about that offensive line. Had a lot of really good stuff on the message board there, actually, on the LSU site. And I asked him, Shay, what's your confidence level here? What are people's confidence levels collectively inside the program and around the program? Because this time last year, it was a huge question mark. They end up winning the Joe Moore Award. And he said, there's probably even a little bit more question around this group, maybe even than there was last year. We saw how it worked out last year. Can't wait to see how it works out this year. All right, final thing I wanted to hit tonight, and then I'm just going to kind of give you some details about what's going on with the show and what will go on with the show and why in the world I'm wearing this ridiculous shirt when it was lovely outside today. There's no excuse to be wearing sleeves right now. Is Will Muschamp in his final spring at South Carolina? Some of you may have seen the YouTube channel here at 24-7 Sports. I did a video about this the other day, and I kind of wanted to rehash and then offer up some things that we've heard, some of the hoofbeats that we've heard from Columbia and how this may impact the entire SEC Eastern Division and beyond. Last year, there was a lot of hot seat talk around Will Muschamp, and I thought it was laughable, and I was on record as saying that. I didn't think at any point last year Will Muschamp's job was in jeopardy. I didn't think it was on the line at any point, and that is including a sometimes hideous up-and-down campaign, offensive inconsistency, quarterback was inconsistent, injuries were, again, the story for South Carolina football, but what that did was it burned up all the equity. And so you, you had the brand new $60 million facility over there that Will Muschamp was heavily involved in designing and building and fundraising. And so that's important. That goes a long way with very deep-pocketed people. What doesn't go a long way is sitting at home in December while you know everyone else in the sport is playing a bowl game. And so now we enter 2020. And what you guys were saying, a lot of you at least in 2019, I agree with. I think it very well could be his final spring. I don't root for this. Because, see, unlike some people, I kind of I like Will Muschamp. 
I, he doesn't text me four or five times a day, but I like Will Muschamp. So I'm going to admittedly say I hope I'm wrong here, and this is certainly no prediction that he's getting fired. But what I do think is I think the hot seat talk is very real, and I think that he was given an opportunity to make some changes in the offseason. Most notably, at least publicly, offensive coordinator is now Mike Bobo. And I got some questions about that, and I'll touch on that in a second. They've already opened spring, by the way, and there is one really notable sort of overarching piece of information that's come out of spring ball at South Carolina that I think, mm, you want to talk metaphorical speaking, I'll give you one to chew on in a second. But new strength and conditioning coach in place, new offensive coordinator, again, allegedly a new offense. You've got moving pieces all over the place. I know that Hale McGranahan, a lot of the guys over at the Big Spur have been talking about how a ton of guys that are going to be counted on to be key contributors, skill guys. Now, offensively, when I say skill guys, you know who I mean. It takes a lot of skill to play offensive line, but I'm not talking about O-linemen. But I'm talking about a lot of true freshmen, some of whom aren't on campus yet, guys, who are going to be counted on to, to ultimately, hopefully, if I'm Will Muschamp, save my job this year. How comforting to know a kid is headed to prom in a couple of months, and uh, then I'm going to count on him to come here and hopefully bail me out and make me look like a genius. So you get the hire of Mike Bobo, you got the hire of strength and conditioning coach. I want you to think about this because you've been there probably as recently as this morning. When you wake up, you're on a tight schedule in the morning and you head out the door and you get in the car and you just go and you got a very few minutes, precious few minutes to get to work and get where you need to be. And what you're doing is you're driving down the road and you're asking yourself, did I remember everything? This is the point of no return. This is that point where you can't go back. You don't have time to go back. So if the answer is, no, I didn't remember everything, you're just screwed. Well, that's got to be kind of how Will Muschamp feels right now because he's got a new offensive coordinator, got a new strength and conditioning coach. I don't. It would take too long, guys. We don't want to do an hour and a half show. It would take too long for me to list all the new about this program, and the least of which being the question that, again, we won't get answered in spring, and that question being, is this really going to be Mike Bobo's offense, or is it going to be just Mike Bobo running the Will Muschamp offense? See, when you talk about Ed Orgeron at LSU, what was key about the overnight turnaround for LSU last year is Orgeron hired the right guys and got out of the way. Question one, is Mike Bobo the right guy? Question number two is, if he is, is the head man willing to get out of the way? I know that's easier said than done. I know when you, you know, when it's your job on the line, talked about this with Malzahn, you know, when your job's on the line, you want to go down firing the bullets you want to fire instead of sitting back with your arms crossed and watching someone else call the shots. Unfortunately, that's led to the demise of many a head coach. It could uh, most recently or in the future at least be happening in Columbia. But having said all that, in order for them to arrive at their destination, which I think has to be eight wins, uh, seven wins and eight wins I think is a massive line in the sand for them this year. In order for them to get there, uh, all this stuff has to click immediately. You've seen Carolina's schedule. It's like this every year. All this stuff has to fall into place. They don't get three or four or five weeks. You gotta be, you gotta be humming by October. I mean, if they, number one, if they had the injuries they've had, they're screwed to begin with. But number two, they don't have time for their offense to gel or click. And I don't even think it's realistic to expect it to be that way. When not only are you talking about new coaches all over the place, philosophically changing, but you got a critical mass of kids who aren't even on campus yet. They're going to be asked to contribute. And I checked Carolina's most recent recruiting class. And while it was solid, and I've kind of secretly admired the job that they've done incrementally getting better in recruiting, 
I didn't see Julio and AJ Green in that last recruiting class. So I don't necessarily know that guys are going to come in here like George Pickens for Georgia last year, uh, Calvin Ridley or Amari Cooper in recent years for Alabama, and just pop out of nowhere. That's what they have to have happen. So Carolina is flying by the seat of their pants. And to me, they are the most interesting program to watch maybe Carolina and Texas A&M this year in the entire SEC because of that just some things that we're watching. So what are we doing right now? Well, what we're doing is a show called Late Kick Live. Throughout the rest of the spring, we're going to, I guess I should probably graphically put this up, so I'll add that to the to-do list for uh, tomorrow on the channel, and that is live shows throughout the spring, Thursday night and Sunday night, 7 o'clock Central Time. It's taken me a little while to get used to talking Central Time instead of Eastern Time. At the conclusion of spring, we'll adjust that schedule accordingly. A lot of you guys are tuned in tonight. I see the chat's very lively. I'll probably have to add some moderators because I recognize some of the names in here and I know you have to be moderated. Big Brother's got to look after you from time to time. So what we're doing here is I work for 24-7 Sports now. I had an incredible opportunity put in front of me and it was going to take an incredible opportunity to walk away from what I had in Columbus, which was full-on independence and access to a professional TV studio to produce my own content. I have followed Rivals and then 24-7 Sports when management here were running both of those shops. I have long admired them from a distance. Even when we were doing Late Kick independently, I heavily leaned on the network of insiders and guys, make no mistake, I'm not being paid to say this. I'm being paid, but not to say this. There are no better insiders in the college athletics industry than the network that they have at 24-7. When I was independent, I leaned on them heavily. So now I work here, and we can lean on them even more heavily. You know the kind of show we want to do if you've already watched us. If you don't, this is not a hot take show. It's not a debate show. Uh, basically, it's not anything you turn on your TV at 10 a.m. Monday through Friday and see. If you got that, or if you want it, rather, you got it in spades on multiple channels. What we like to think we know here is what the hardcore college football fan wants. And that's information, and that's intel, and that's a little bit more granular look at the sport instead of just flying over it in a blimp and swinging at the low-hanging fruit, knocking it out of the park. Again, there's a lot of content out there. We don't aggregate. We're not looking for clicks. I mean, we're looking for views, but we want to get your views the right way. And we have a dynamite list of resources to be able to do that. We got a ton of ideas. This is just, in my mind, scratching the surface of what we're capable of and ultimately going to do here. My show is not the only new show coming. It's just the one that we happen to get off the ground first. So walking in the door here, it is very refreshing to be around the most talented people in the industry. And it's a freight train moving the same direction. And I'm very happy to be on board. And I'm very happy to have you on board. As I always asked you, like the show, like the channel, subscribe to the channel, share away on all the platforms, message boards like you guys do. I'll be very active on those 24-7 sports message boards. Been on several of them already. So you guys are the lifeblood of this show, not me. And I really appreciate you following. I see we got really good viewership. I mean, we've got a lot of you tuned in here and it is, uh, what is it, Colin? Aaron, it is uh, March 5th. So yeah, the first games are like in uh, seven or eight months. Really appreciate you being here. We'll see you back here again Sunday night. This will be available in podcast form. Those details will be finalized next week. Start searching for Late Kick, and by next week, you'll be finding that. But we'll be here same time Sunday night. Until then, I'm Josh Pate for Colin, for Aaron. We appreciate you watching. This is The Late Kick. Have a great night, guys.